Todd Wilson is the co-founder of Exponential. And uh, what you may not know is that he was a nuclear engineer. And all I know is that I don't even really know what that is. Huh? <laughs> yeah. And uh, but it, but it, 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 he's smart. Well, I just we just know that. And uh, but he he left that successful career to uh, go into full time vocational ministry. And uh, I'm, there may be some people in the room who have made that same uh, leap of faith, same jump. And uh, but he's just an expert on leadership and is here to help us as pastors and leaders. And uh, so I'm just thankful to be on the front row to be able to take notes and, uh, and listen to what he has to say. So why don't you give a warm welcome, a classroom number two welcome for our speaker today. Thanks, Jonathan. It's really good to be here with you guys today. I am, uh, am an engineer by trade, been in ministry now longer than I was in engineering, though. I... Uh, uh, spent 15 years in the nuclear Navy. Uh, if you've heard of the crazy old man, Admiral Rickover, uh, I was part of the nuclear program, probably the premier engineering group in the world, actually, that does our nuclear ships and aircraft carriers and different things. I uh, am one of those weird people that uh, by the age of 13, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And uh, I was sitting in the back of a chemistry class about this size in seventh grade, and there weren't even whiteboards at the time. It was a chalkboard. And the, the teacher was drawing an atom, neutrons, electrons, protons, and I was absolutely mesmerized. Like, the fact that somebody could draw a picture of something they'd never seen captivated me. I went home that day and said, I want to be a nuclear physicist. Within a year, uh, blue-collar family, my dad put new hedge in. I had to go home every day from school and spend about an hour doing chores before I could play with friends. And my dad put in brand new hedge, and my job was to water these brand new hedge. And the first day, I looked at the hose and I looked at the hedge and the yard, and I designed an irrigation thing <laughs> that I could go, I literally could go home, turn on the water, and irrigate the hedge while I played for the hour. Yeah. And so my, instead of getting upset with me, my parents said, you don't need to be a nuclear physicist, you need to be a nuclear engineer. And so from age 13, I was not a Christian at the time, from age 13 till college, college was just in my way. It was in the way to going out and making money. And uh, I was very fortunate, uh, got into the nuclear program. Uh, I had a great career, promoted way too quickly. I was overseeing an industrial activity of about 6,000 people by the age of 29. Um, and the weird thing that happened, I became a Christian in that journey there. But at age 33, um, I started wrestling with, wow, is this what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? A lot of people don't have the mid-career thing until they're in their 40s to early 50s, but I started really late 20s, early 30s with, is this what I'm going to do with the rest of my life? Um, picked up a book called uh, Halftime by a guy named Bob Buford. Anybody heard of Bob Buford here? Um, it's worth uh, getting the book. It's called Halftime. And really what Bob wrote about was this idea of moving from success to significance. Um, not spending your whole life just going after success, but moving into the significance thing. Um, the book captivated me at age 33, and I went into a two-year wrestling match with, uh, really with God. I wanted to go start a company at the time, but ended up in full-time vocational ministry, which was really humorous because I never wanted to be a lead pastor. And so why in the world, somebody who's been doing really well career-wise, moving up the chain, why go into ministry? It just seems so dead-ended kind of thing. Um, 
and, and knowing I didn't ever wanted to be a, a lead pastor. So uh, ended up that the guy that was mentoring me when I first became a Christian, um, his name's Brett Andrews. Anybody ever heard of Brett Andrews? Okay. That's the thing about level five leaders. Brett Andrews was 22 years old when he started saying to me, you need to go into ministry. I'm going to start a church planting church. And I would say, what's that mean? And he would say, I don't know, but I'm going to start a church planting church. And I would say, well, how do you do that? And he would say, I have no idea. That's why I want you to come out of the marketplace and come help me figure it out. Fast forward the clock 25 years. You've never heard of Brett Andrews. Brett Andrews's church has planted over 140 churches. And I don't mean cooperatively putting money in with, I mean 140 churches. Exponential, the ministry that I get to be a part of nationally with church planting, would not exist if Brett Andrews wasn't doing what Brett Andrews is doing. And so part of what I want to really talk about today as we move some of this content quickly, we're going to go through content. Um, I just want to challenge you with the question, and you've, you've had the legacy question before, but I really want to challenge you with the question, are you on a path right now that the legacy that you're going to leave behind is really about what you've accumulated and what you've left behind, or is it about what you've catapulted forward? Because there is a significant, profound difference yeah. between what we accumulate and leave behind versus what we catapult forward in other people, okay? That's really at the heart of what we're gonna talk about today. So if you feel like you're in the wrong workshop session or app session, uh, it's okay to get up and go, but that's what we're gonna talk about today is this idea of what kind of legacy are you building? Are you building one based on accumulation or one based on this catapulting things forward, okay? Um, I spent the first 10 years in ministry. Uh, by title, I was an executive pastor. Um, our church was uh, planted to be a church planting church. And when I came on staff, we were three years old and we were just starting our first church. And Brett Andrews said, I'm not positive how to be a church planting church, but I know one church plant every three years is not a church planting church, is what he said to me. We've got to figure out how to get this to one, one a year or more, is what, what you want to do. And right at that time, there was this thing called multi-site. This is 1998. There were less than 100 multi-site churches in America at the time. And now there's over 7,500. So, you know, we've kind of seen that movement happening with that. But uh, we decided that we would try in 1998 uh, multi-site. And there were no books, no conference. There was no art conference to come to to figure out how to, how to do it. We didn't have any kind of books. For me, um, I jumped in as the executive pastor. We hired a part-time campus pastor who was going to spend 20% of his time. This is how foolish we were. 20% of his time and then still have like three other duties to, to do the campus pastor thing. And imagine we've sent out all of our direct mail cards. We've spent thousands of dollars on starting this new campus. And one week before opening day, the campus pastor came to us and said, I quit. And we've already sent out all the marketing. We've, done, we've got a launch team of 100 people. I mean, the thing is, there's no holding it back at this point. So someone who never wanted to be a lead pastor of anything, I functionally now am the campus pastor of this first <laughs> campus that we've got to got to get started. But in the process of us figuring out multi-site, 
I did what any engineer would do. There were no books or seminars or anything. I was fearless. I called Rick Warren. I called Bill Hybels. I called Andy Snell. I called anybody that would talk to me about how do you get a campus going. And in the process, the only thing I had was to read church planting books. And so I read everything and anything on church planting, including talking with as many church planting leaders as possible, which is what gave me the fire personally for, for church planting. Over that next decade, um, spent about 10 years uh, either starting or re-engineering different national church planting things and helping church planting things get going. Eventually, a ministry called Exponential, which I uh, founded and lead now, um, it really was a way of taking six different business cards and kind of having one business card to work on a bunch of, of different things. Um, here's what happened about three years ago, four years ago now. Uh, Dave Ferguson and I, who co-lead Exponential, um, we were having a conversation, and I had never had the same role in my life for more than three years. And I was getting a little bit... Uh, anxious, I think, thinking about maybe it's time to move on to something else. And Dave said to me, I'll, I'll never forget these words, he said, what would we need to be doing that you would want to spend the rest of your life doing it? Now, I'm a futurist, a strategic person, I do life planning with people, and I couldn't answer the question. But I very quickly was able to say, Dave, I don't know what I do want to do with the rest of my life, but let me tell you what I know I don't want to do with the rest of my life. I'm tired of spending so much time helping big churches get bigger. I do not want to spend the rest of my life just helping churches get bigger. If I'm going to spend the... I want to go back to the marketplace and make money if that's all I'm going to do. If I'm going to have an impact, I want to be part of some kind of multiplication equation. And so that put us, that was actually about five years ago, that put us on a trajectory where we said, okay, what does it look like to get razor focused on multiplication? And now's where a little bit of the engineers are going to come in. I'm going to start using the whiteboard a little bit. But the first thing that we had to do was say, okay, well, what is the condition of multiplication in America right now? What does it look like in U.S. churches? If we're going to be a national ministry that champions church multiplication and focuses on moving the needle of church multiplication, uh, we really need to kind of set a baseline of where are we. So here's what we did. We simply took three different, we call them buckets, and mathematically... If I give you those three symbols, it, it doesn't matter what degree you have anywhere or what level of school you are, you know what subtraction, addition, and multiplication is. If I say subtraction, that's a graph where things are going down with time, which we don't like that. Addition is a graph that's going up with time, and multiplication is really going up with time. So we wanted to try to take the 350,000 churches in America and say, where are they in these three buckets? Okay? The first thing that happened was we realized, well, it doesn't conveniently fit the three because somewhere between subtraction and increase is flatline plateau. And somewhere between up and increasingly up is, is kind of, you know, it's got a transition to going up on a curve. There's something in between those two. And so what the picture really looks like, if I can redo it, is it's really three overlapping circles. 
You've got subtraction, addition, multiplication. Let's just call this subtraction. Addition. <coughs> multiplication. And over here you've got plateau. And here you've got reproducing. And before I move on just mathematically, anyone want to venture a guess? What's the difference between reproducing and multiplying? The God of the universe is the God of math. And so we would expect to see the math from the God of the universe and what happens in churches. So what's the difference between more than addition, but less than multiplication, what we would call reproduction. Think about where you know reproduction in your life. Repro think physically reproduction, having children. Your DNA gets reproduced into something else. Okay? Here's the first truth we have to latch on to. Not all growth, and let's, let's put labels on here. This is a scarcity culture down here. This is a growth culture in here, and there's more of an abundance culture out here. And the, the first set of truths we have to latch onto is not all addition is reproduction, okay? Just think about that. You can add without reproducing. You can have the very best Sunday show in the history of the world and you can attract people through marketing campaigns and outreach campaigns, and you can absolutely be doing it better than anybody else, and you're not reproducing. You're adding, okay? Adding can be done without reproducing. Now let's go to the corollary. Can you reproduce without adding? It's physically impossible. You cannot reproduce without adding. Any form of reproduction you can think of, from human reproduction to any, from birthing a campus to birthing a church to whatever, you cannot reproduce without adding. But you've got to keep in the back of your mind, there's healthy and there's unhealthy ways to add. Because not all addition is reproduction. Now take it one step further, reproduction to multiplication, okay? Can you reproduce without multiplying? Absolutely. Just like you can add without reproducing. You can reproduce without multiplying. But can you multiply without reproducing? No. So the truths we've got to hold on to is all reproduction adds and all multiplication reproduces, but it's not true the other way. And that's where the difference between healthy reproduction addition versus unhealthy reproduction addition fits in. Is that making sense? Okay, so here's what we did. We simply labeled these one, two, three, four, and five. The subtraction, plateau, addition, reproducing, and multiplying. And then what we did is we went out to look at all the different studies that are out there across different denominations to say, because what we're wanting to do is measure. We want to figure out how many churches are in those categories so that we can get focused on the future of what's the future look like. So here's what we found at level one and level two, 80% of the 
of U.S. churches are at level one and two. Okay, 80%. Here's the second thing we did. We jumped to level five because it's a little muddy to get three and four. So we said, okay, let's go to multiplying. And I sent literally a team of about eight people out and said, go find 10 multiplying churches. I'm not talking reproducing churches, but multiplying churches that meet the mathematical definition of multiplication the way we see it in movements in the early church in the U.S. And this team of eight people came back to me after a month and said, we can't find 10. And I said, find me five. And they said, we can't find five. Okay. So we essentially, from a mathematical definition standpoint, we just said level five is approximately 0%. Now, Ed Stetzer had written a, a book called Viral Churches, if, if anyone's read that. Um, Ed Stetzer and Warren Bird, they actually did research. Their definition of a viral church is consistent with what we're calling level five here. They were only able to find a couple of what they called viral churches. One of those was Ralph Moore's uh, Hope Chapel movement. Um, Ralph is now part of our exponential team. Um, Ralph's church has started over 2,400 churches. Okay, I mean, and, and I'm not talking house churches. These are churches that start with an average of 140 people with a Sunday worship service. 2,400. Now, how do you get to 2,400? Second, third, fourth generation. The, it, it's in the DNA. In fact, the definition in viral churches where Stetzer wrote about viral churches, um, what he found about Ralph Moore's level five context was that you would have to put a strategy in place in Ralph's church to stop the multiplication from happening. Where most of us have to put strategies in place to reproduce and multiply, what Ed concluded about viral churches is that they would actually have to put things in place to stop the multiplication from happening. It organically happens as it bubbles up. Well, here's, if you're into math, 80% at level one and two, 0% at level five, that means level three and four are 20% combined, okay? The best data that we could get out there said that about 16% of churches are at level three, which is a solid growth orientation. When I say level three, here's the picture I want you to get in your mind. I want you to think about the churches that are on the fastest growing, biggest, most innovative church lists. Most of those churches are level three. Okay? You might not believe it, but go look for yourself. Most of them are level three. They're focused on growth. Okay? So about 16% is at level three. That leaves about 4%. So let, let that sink in. Less than 4% of U.S. churches ever reproduce. We're not talking multiply. We're talking reproduce or multiply. What happens to the U.S. population if that's the statistic with reproduction in the U.S.? We, we don't, we, it doesn't go well. We don't last very long. That's the condition in the church. Less than 4% ever, ever reproduce. Okay, this became our laser focus about four or five years ago was to say, okay, what does it look like? What needs to happen in the U.S. church to see this 4% number? And when I say 4%, I'm combining level five and level four. So what does it look like to see the level four, 4% increase to greater than 10%? Okay, 
Here's why that's important. Most sociologists, if you go go read about trends and movements and patterns and, you know, even Starbucks, is, this is true of Starbucks when they were ramping up, um, you have to get 16% of a population behaving a certain way for it to become the new norm. 16%'s the tipping point. When 16% believe something and behave a certain way, as the map makers, it will move the rest of the population that way. Let me suggest to you that it is not by coincidence that level three growth orientation is at 16%. That is the normative measure of success in the US church. That's why we have the fastest growing, largest, most innovative church lists, because that is our measure of success. What I want to challenge you with the rest of our time, we're going to roll up our sleeves and get into what some of this means. I'm going to go back to the question, what legacy are you leaving? Okay. The legacy of a level three church is really cool. Lots of good stories, lots of stuff. But level three is an accumulation-based thing. It's what you're leaving behind and what you accumulated. Levels four and five are not about what you accumulate. They're about what you catapult forward. Okay, that's the context of where we're going right now. I'm going to pause and t I'll take one question, maybe representative of if there are any at this point. We are going to do Q&A at the end, but I want to, before I transition. This might seem a little remedial, but can you give me a better understanding of what you mean by reproducing yeah, church? Yeah, if you would, if you'll hold that thought, because I think we're going to cover it, and when we get to the Q&A and end, if we don't, we'll, we'll get into it. For right now, think reproduce is is a campus, a multi-site, it's, it, let, let's, let's do it this way. Um, you're a church with one church service, okay? You go to a second church service on Sunday morning. What have you done? You, you've, you've added, you've also reproduced, but this is where it gets fuzzy between add and reproduce. You haven't really reproduced because the thing that you've added can't survive on its own. Okay? You're not going to like where I'm headed with this, though. Okay? So, so we add a third service. Just what I said. We've added. We add a Saturday night service. We added. We add a campus. And it makes everybody uncomfortable, okay? The reality is the campus is somewhere in the fuzziness because unlike a Sunday morning service that's not going to survive on its own, we start a campus, some could survive, some couldn't. It's sort of like an adolescent child that maybe they could survive for a while kind of, kind of thing. So, but just think reproduce is, is that... Okay. All right, um, I'm going to get a different color marker here. So here's the question, why 80, 16, 4, and 0 on those percentages? Why don't we see more? If, if the early church had this reproduce and multiply impulse, if the design for the church is to reproduce and multiply, why in the world would we see less than 5% of U.S. churches reproducing and multiplying? 
like we really have to ask. I'm going to go ahead and give you what we believe the answer is, then I'm going to unpack it for you. Okay? We have created operating systems for church in the U.S. church that are optimized to level three. Just think about the, the operating system on your phone. You can't run Android on an iPhone and you can't run iPhone on an Android. The operating system defines what you can do with what's in your hand. And we have created operating systems in the U.S. church. We've defined success at level three and we've designed operating systems to produce level three. Okay? Now let's make it personal. Church isn't the problem. We have defined success for leaders at level three. So the accumulation nature of level three is really something in our own heart and our own scorecards that's what's causing the level three behavior of the church. So we're not going to change the operating systems in the church before we change the scorecard of the heart of the leader that's behind it. Does that make sense? Okay. So here's, here's what I want to walk you through. Um, it's been eight years ago now. This was actually before we did the picture, but now we can draw a picture of what happened eight years ago. Um, Dave Ferguson and I were everywhere we would go, we would hear from megachurch pastors, the bigger my church gets, the more lonely I get. Okay? So we decided to pull a retreat together of 12 megachurch pastors um, with no agenda except to get together in a nice place and talk about what's the burden of your heart. And in God's humor, we had 11 megachurch pastors, you know all of their names, and for whatever reason, Alan Hirsch, the missiologist Alan Hirsch, ended up at the table. And um, here's what we did, no agenda. We started going around the room. And the very first person, we said, just tell us any domain of your life, your family, your church, your community, what is the biggest burden of your heart? The first megachurch pastor said, that's easy. I planted my church 20 years ago. By God's grace, it became a megachurch. We've done externally focused. We've done multi-site. We do church planting. And there's not, an, these are almost his exact words, there's not enough years left in my life to just keep growing this thing bigger. I'm interested in how do we change the conversation from where's the next one to how do we release 250 of our people to take our city. And I'm telling you, I get goosebumps every time I tell this story because if you were in this room, we moved to the second megachurch pastor. And the second megachurch pastor said, that's mine. And we went to the third. And he said, that's mine. And we went to the fourth. And he said, that's mine. All the way around to the 11th megachurch pastor. 11 out of 11 had the same burden. And here's what they really were The 12th was Alan Hirsch, the missiologist. So the first 11 megachurch pastors, here's what they were really saying. Anybody a Matrix fan, red pill, blue pill? <laughs> this was our red pill, blue pill moment, okay? What they really were saying was, I have spent my career building a ladder against the wall and climbing that ladder. And the higher I'm getting on the ladder, I'm realizing the ladder is on the wrong wall. Now listen, these are 11 out of 11 prominent megachurch pastors. Okay? So here's, 
here's what I want to draw for a picture to represent what they were saying. If you could just put a giant magnet, picture this green thing is a giant magnet. What do magnets do? They attract. Okay? All of these guys had spent their career in this attraction field of the level three magnet. Here's what the level three magnet is. You, you, I'm going to sound overly critical. I love the church. I'm on staff at a church. I'm a missionary of our church, okay? So I'm sold out to the church. Um, here's the unfortunate thing at level three. You do not need to know Jesus Christ to build a level three church. Let it sink in, okay? You don't have to. The level three church is a franchise model of church. Just get the right franchise manager who can really speak well, who can do killer good children's programs, who can do the best outreach events in all of the community, who can do killer good marketing, who can, who can rally the money for the best buildings in town. Think about the operating system. Think about this magnet that builds a level three church. Every one of us can write the formula for it. There's a formula for it. And you don't have to be a Christian to execute the formula. Okay? So we have designed an operating system of how you get to level three. Here's the kicker. The second question that we asked those 11 megachurch pastors, we went around the room a second time and said, okay, if this is the burden of your heart, What's keeping you from getting to, we couldn't call it level four and five at the time, but what's keeping you from breaking free of this level three thing? And here's how the conversation went. The first guy said, oh, it's easy. I'm, I've got an $11.2 million building debt. As soon as I start encouraging people to leave and reproduce, what's going to happen? I can't pay my mortgage. We went to the second person, and I, I'm telling you, I like crystal memory. I, I mean, it's like in, per, permanently engraved. Here's what the second person said. Oh, it's easy. It takes 927 children's workers to run our children's ministry every Sunday morning. How in the world can I get my children's staff to be about developing and helping find the calling of people to release them into their God-given calling when they can't fill the 927 spots every week. The third person said, oh, it's easy. Every time we get a killer good staff person who can be a campus pastor, they want to go plant a church. And it, it really stinks, like letting go of the people. Here's the paradox. Every magnet goes both ways. Okay? If you don't take anything away from this seminar other than that picture, the very operating system that brings us to growth is the very operating system that holds us back from reproducing and multiplying. Because the very formula of what you do to get here are the same things that hold you back from moving beyond. Does that make sense? 
What time is it? I got to make sure we don't run out of time. Keep me on track. We have to win. All right. I think we're doing good. I'm going to slightly switch gears then. What, here's what I'm going to do. Um, we, we had a team of uh, leaders from around the country for about two years at Exponential. Um, it, it ranged from heads of networks and denominations to um, as many level four and five people as we could get on the team. And for two years, this team met to try to figure out, okay, if, the, if there's an operating system to level three, what's the operating system at level five? And that's what I want to now turn our attention to is to say, okay, what would it look like in the U.S. context over at level five? Okay. Now, I'm going to just give you the disclaimer right up front to say um, four of the 15 megachurch pastors that were at level four on our team decided in the middle of the two-year journey, and th these are successful megachurch pastors, they really wrestled with th this. Oh, my goodness, I think I'm going to have to leave my church and go start a new church to do a level five church. I don't think my church can go from level four to level five, okay? And here's what happened, um, and I think it's exactly right. The church that I'm part of, we've planted 142 churches now. We are a level four church. We're not a level five church. And here's why. If the senior pastor and myself died today, there's a very good chance within three or four years we wouldn't be planting churches, we are programmatically planting churches. And as soon as what we do is programmatic and not embedded in the DNA, that makes it level four rather than level five. The distinctive at level five, anytime you get that rapidly up curve, it's embedded in your DNA. It's such a part of your DNA that it just naturally happens. That's what we want at the church I'm at. We so want to see organic multiplication happening but then there's the reality of all of our level three operating system stuff, that the same issues. So what ends up happening when you're at level four, it's painful the more you're pushing out into level four away from three. And the far, think about a spring force or tension on something. The more tension there is pulling away, the more it wants to snap back. That's what kept happening. Here's, I don't know the right answer to this, but the team that we've had for two years that's worked on this, most of the people on that team would say they actually think that circles one and three overlap and that five is such a different operating system that it's probably a separate circle over here. Now, the way that many of the, the guys that are part of that team have landed is sort of the, the Moses to Joshua thing. It's to say, you know, it, it would be wrong to undo what all the good stuff at our church is. That's where my church is at. We planted 140 churches. I would argue, let's not go blow up what we're doing. We're doing a lot of good stuff. Level four is great. 4% of U.S. churches are doing it. What we're seeing happen now is a lot of level four pastors are saying, I can't take my church there, but I can coach somebody else to get there. And when you start looking at the elements of a level five operating system, many of us boomers don't have the stomach for it. I just hate to tell you. Okay. But there's a generation rising up that does. 
and that's what gets exciting about the level five thing. What we believe at Exponential is going to start happening, we're already seeing it, is an increasing number of level three and four churches that become what we would call R&D centers, incubators, laboratories that are saying, we can't get to level five, but we absolutely can pour gasoline on some other things to get to level five. Okay. So I'm, I'm actually, I don't want to sound negative, I'm, saying, I'm positive that I think we've got a convergence in the future coming that we're going to start seeing more level five uh, application. Okay? I'm going to erase this. All right. Um, let me... Uh, I'm going to try to boil down kind of operating system-wise. This team that met for two years ended up um, coming up with like 10 factors that they felt like needed to be part of a level five operating system. Now that was partly from looking internationally at church, but it was partly we had a couple of level five churches on the team. So we would have liked to have had more level five to, you know, be able to prove it out a little bit better, but we had a few level five and then looking internationally. And we came up with 10 dimensions. And what I'm getting ready to show you is to take the 10, and we really boiled it down to three critical dimensions that seemed like they had to be present, both looking internationally, but at the level five churches that we had. Um, what I want to introduce is the idea, again, the engineer is not going to go away in me. Um, in engineering, there are things called tension diagrams. Um, you've heard of the tyranny of the or. You know, you can have this or this. And we say, no, we want the genius of the and. Let's try to get both. In a tension diagram, you, you usually have two tensions that are pulling you in different directions. So in ministry, you've got the time demands of ministry and what you've got to do to do ministry. And then you've got to raise kids at the same time. There's this, and, and the family tension. So you've got the ministry tension one way and the family time the other way. That, that's the, pre when, when I say tension diagram, think that. Just keep thinking in your mind, ministry tension, family tension. They're things that tend to want to pull you different directions. I'm going to introduce to you three dimensions of level five multiplication. Each of these three dimensions I'm going to do are tension diagrams. There, there's really six elements, a tension in both directions of each of three different dimensions for a total of six parts, okay? Here's the generic picture I'm gonna show you. Just imagine three dimensions, so that's three different, you know, six elements, and let's say there's add and multiply dimensions on that one, there's add and multiply on that one, there's add and multiply. And our, what we need to be doing is the bullseye in the middle. These are not go to the multiply end. God's method of multiply, if you, if you look at the original Adam and Eve, Noah repopulating the earth, multiplication happens through addition. It's, it's both, okay? God, God could have chosen to repopulate the earth with Noah by Noah being one father of millions. But instead he gave us the family unit that we would reproduce a family 
and add one by one, but the result would be multiplication, okay? So in this diagram, I want you to think on all three of these dimensions, we've got to get both the multiply end and the addition end. We've got to find the balance between the two, okay? Here's the question. If less than 4% of U.S. churches are reproducing or multiplying, we're focused on the addition end at level three, what happens if we're not doing this, not doing this, and not doing this? Where we, where we need to be centered on this diagram, what happens when you cut, if you just think of this as the multiplication side, and this is the addition side, what happens when you cut off these parts? There's no tension, and this center thing moves over here, okay? That's what's happened in the U.S. church. I'm going to get, I'm going to, on the next series here, going to give you the three dimensions and show you how we're not doing this, and what has happened is it's moved our center focal point squarely over in the addition end, okay? All right, here's, uh, here's what happened when we started doing this work a few years ago. Um, if you go back to legacy, I am a nut about church multiplication. I'm pretty sure my epitaph will say something about church multiplication. I live and breathe it. I wake up thinking about it. It's, it's what I do, okay? But here's the challenge. If we're all activists for something today, increasingly in this society, if you're not an activist, you're the oddball out. You're an activist for something. If we had to put an epitaph on G Jesus, an activist for, fill in the blank. And I'm only going to let you pick one thing, like an activist for one thing. Let me be brutally honest and say, I want it to be church multiplication. Like, I want Jesus, an activist for church multiplication. And you know what? Bad news. That's not it. Jesus was not, uh, he cared about it, but it wasn't his deal. Now, here's where I'm not going to be politically correct. Guess what? The answer wasn't community development, social justice, racial reconciliation, and the list goes on and on. Those weren't the one thing on his activist list. Okay? If you had to pick one thing, Jesus and activist for, what is it? Kingdom. Okay. What did he tell us to do? Go and make disciples. Okay. Now we can put that in kingdom building format or whatever we want, but this idea of go and make disciples, I want to suggest to you that disciple making, if we go back to the idea that you don't have to be a Christian to build a level three church, I want to suggest to you that the primary thing that makes us different than Walmart, Kmart, Google, and all the companies is disciple-making. Jesus is Lord and His command to go and make disciples. So in, in the tension diagram, disciple-making is the first dimension. We realized three years ago at Exponential, our mission is to see the 4% go to greater than 10%. And we're not a disciple-making organization. We're a church multiplication championing organization. And we had the realization 
Disciple making is what distinguishes us from everybody else. And if we don't get disciple making right, we can't accomplish our mission. We're not going to, church multiplication is just an overflow of the fruit of healthy disciple making. And so let's talk quickly the addition end and the multiply end. Let's start with how did, if we just follow Jesus' lead, just him with the 12, what's, what's the add and the multiply? What's the mechanism here for disciple making? Okay? It's relational. It's one at a time. The addition is one at a time. Okay? That's where there's a little bit of good news for us. In most of our level three orientations, we're still at the one at a time. Okay? That's the good news. The bad news is, what's the mechanism for adding one at a time, Jesus' way? Think about this. He could have done, he could have filled stadiums and preached to 50,000 people at a time for three years, but he kept sticking with 12 people instead of the big group teaching thing. And it's because that what he was teaching us was disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. The method of adding Jesus' way is by a mature disciple who makes another disciple, multiplies themselves or reproduces themselves to add another. Is that making sense? It isn't complicated, actually, but we make it way too complicated. So that's Jesus' way, a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple. Let's talk about our way. Let's now talk about the level three operating system. How do we add disciples? I'm not saying every single church, but if we had to say the standard operating system in a level three church, how does it add disciples? The word attractional, and attractional can mean good and bad, but typically, yeah, classes, so teaching, Sunday services, 80% of our time going into Sunday services. We, let's just agree there's a whole lot of ways we add right now from marketing to outreach to Sunday to music to all of the things we do in the Level 3 operating system. What we need to agree on is that if we went, go back to that list of the top 100 biggest or fastest growing or whatever churches, and let's actually go look and see how are disciples being added. Our, is the primary mechanism of addition another disciple who's making a disciple, or is it an attractional by how we're accumulating in our operating system? That makes sense? So in the first dimension of level five, we have to get back to Jesus' way of adding one disciple who makes disciples, who makes disciples, rather than programmatic. So we've got to get to a relational, one at a time, versus a programmatic addition. And again, I'm not banging on addition here. We've got to have addition. You can't get multiplication without addition. All we're talking about, if you go back to the beginning, is there's healthy addition and unhealthy addition. And not all addition leads to reproduction. Think about, go back to the truth that not all addition leads to reproduction. 
what happens when your method of addition is not a mature disciple who's maturing who makes another disciple? What's the consequence of that? You, lo you lose the engine down here. But now what happens with the ones you've added that's not Jesus' way? Now you've got to have even better programs. You've got to make them even happier. You got getting it like it, it now we got to put even more energy in because we've not added the way the healthy way. Okay, let me go to the second. Let's say now that we're we're actually doing discipleship really well. We are we're adding Jesus way. We're adding by multiplying and that's how it's happening. Let's put it in this form. Let's say we've got a house church of 12 the way Jesus did. For three years, you've got 12 the way Jesus did. What is the fruit of healthy disciple-making? What happens if you're doing it Jesus' way? The 12 would go out. So, so you'd, you'd have more, whatever form the church takes, you'd have more. We don't get the benefit of Jesus sticking around for another 20 years to see how he would have grown the 12. But I think it's safe to say from what we've seen that he probably wouldn't do with the 12 what we tend to do in the level 3 operating system of the church, right? What would you do? You would, mo you would mobilize. So the second dimension here, you get the disciple-making right. There still has to be a mobilization piece. And let's, let's again say there's an add piece and a multiply piece. So in mobilization, I want to suggest to you that the addition end of mobilization, this is the Acts 2 church. You can put the words on here, living in common. This is the idea that if you do a study through the New Testament, what's the prominent form of evangelism in the New Testament? It's called the Acts 2 Church Living in Common. Insiders behaving in a way that outsiders want to be part of what the insiders are doing. This is the other way you can say family here, too. The church as a family. Not as a pick three. Not as a give us an hour on Sunday morning in church, give us an hour in small groups, give us an hour in service. That's three hours a week. This is a 24-7 family when we're talking about living in common. This end would be living deployed. Here's the, here's the picture I want to give you for the difference in living in common and living deployed. Um, picture an aircraft carrier. I'm going to keep coming back to engineering stuff. So picture an aircraft carrier, all right? An aircraft carrier has 5,000 people on board. There's uh, 120 airplanes, and there's 200 pilots. So if you do the math, 5,000 people, 120 airplanes, 200 pilots, that means there's 4,800 people on an aircraft carrier that never fly an airplane. They support the 200 pilots that are flying the 120 planes, okay? Now, I want to suggest to you that the aircraft carrier is the U.S. church, okay? 5,000 people, 200 paid staff to fly the airplanes, 
and 4,800 people to support the operation of the machine. And I want to suggest to you that the way the church is designed is for both. It's we got to have 5,000 people that are willing to cook, clean, hold babies, hand out brochures. We got to all live in common. We're a family. We got to do it all. And we got to have 5,000 people that see themselves as flying planes. Okay? Flying planes beyond the bounds of the church. Let me ask you this. What's the mission of an aircraft carrier? Aircraft carrier. Okay. It's not to just carry planes. It is to forward deploy planes where the aircraft carrier can't go. Okay. What is an aircraft carrier that never forward deploys an airplane called? A cruise ship. That's exactly right. An aircraft carrier, its mission is to forward deploy planes where the carrier can't go. And an aircraft carrier that never does that is a cruise ship. And I'm going to suggest to you that's what the level three church in America is. It's a cruise ship. It does not forward, it has 5,000 people with 200 paid staff and 4,800 people running the machine. If I can put a word on what this living deployed is, we spend so much energy in a level three operating system feeding the beast that we don't release the beast. Okay? So in the level five operating system, we get this weird synergy between a family that's living in common, not three hours a week with pick three, but a family, and 24-7 missionaries where every person, if you, if you follow in, a, what time is it? I, wanna, I don't want to get us in trouble. 2.20? Okay. Um, if you follow in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 1 says that Jesus is the fullness of everything in every way. The idea that the church and the body of believers has the ability to fill every nook and cranny of society with the fullness of Jesus. Ephesians 2, and the way we do it is we each are God's handiwork uniquely made with specific works and deeds to do. Ephesians 3, motive of love and unity. We've got to have the right motives when we do it. We get to Ephesians 4, and as church staff, we always stop at Ephesians 4.11 that our role as church staff is to equip the servants for works of service. Okay? What we really mean is equip people to do all this stuff we can't do to keep the beast running. Okay? But if you go on and read 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 right after it, to, to, to build people up in works of service, for what purpose? that we might reach the full maturity of the fullness of Jesus, which goes back to Ephesians 1, that we are to be the fullness of Jesus into every crack and cranny of society. When we don't mobilize people as 24-7 missionaries into every crack and cranny of society, what we're really doing is cutting off the intent of the church being this colorful mosaic of helping people reach the, the fullness of Jesus. Okay. Um, let me keep moving. Third dimension. Let's say that we've done great at disciple making and now we really are finding this balance of a family and we're mobilizing people. Um, here's what will happen. 
that house church of 12 making disciples, they're growing, they're adding numbers, they're mobilizing people out into corners of society, and now all of a sudden, growth has to be scalable, and so now all of a sudden they never had to worry about a place to meet, but now 12 became 25 and 25 became 50, even though they're multiplying people, and all of a sudden, boy, there's a lot more stuff to do here. You're running into all kinds of infrastructure things. So the third dimension is what we'll call capacity building. And capacity building, don't be scared by the term. Capacity, if I say, what's the capacity of a one-gallon milk carton? You can get it in your mind right away. I picture one gallon of milk going into a carton. Capacity is the size of the container that something can hold. The bones in our body are for capacity. The, the bigger your bone structure, the more weight you can carry. The smaller the bone structure, the less. So just like the others, there's an addition end and there's a multiply end. And if you think, here's how I want you to think. Addition capacity is everything we do in the local church to be able to scale the growth of the local church. And we need that. We need to be, if, if we're being successful at disciple making and mobilization, our numbers will increase and God added to their numbers daily. So we've got to be able to have a capacity that, that does the addition. But at the same time, multiplication capacity is where instead of planting more trees in our own orchard, we're planting more orchards. This is the kingdom building part that somebody brought up before. So this is the, this is the little c efforts, and this is the big c efforts. Go back to the first tension diagram that I drew where I said, if in reality, we're not doing that, and we're not doing that, and we're not doing that, and we're optimizing over here. Okay, here's what I want to suggest to you. Our bullseye is on this programmatic operating system of how we're programmatically adding. And now look at the consequences of what happens. <clears throat> if the way we fuel our growth is through all the programmatic activity that ranges from the best children's programs in town to the best music in town to the best buildings in town to the best, the best, the best, the best, okay? Look what happens. Our capacity building completely gets focused on supporting that. But worse yet, come down here to living in common, all right? There, there is no better organization in the history of the world than the church in the United States in mobilizing volunteers. If you add it up this year, by the end of the year, the total number of volunteer hours in the United States, I would venture to guess that organizations two through 10 don't collectively add up to the number of hours that the church is number one mobilizes for volunteers, okay? But here's what happens. Just like we're not doing the addition the way Jesus taught us, we're not doing the family living in common the way he taught us because our efforts have to refocus on volunteerism. Because what has to happen, we have to double down on the only way we're going to fuel this programmatic growth is not by deploying people as missionaries into their corners of society, 
but it's figuring out how to get them mobilized as volunteers into what we're, we're doing. Okay? Any questions on this? Wow. I actually do. I'm so sorry. Well, you don't have to be sorry. I asked if there were any questions. No. I, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. The question is, when I use the word missionary, do I mean literally a missionary? The answer is no. The team that's met for the couple of years, we're generically using the word missionary. to, to it, It's a different mindset, but to get every person in a church seeing themselves as a missionary with a unique mission field where they already are in the marketplace, in the workforce. If I can just, I'll, I'll jump ahead. This isn't part of today's session, but at Exponential that I lead, we are always looking two to three years in the future. We're shaping our annual conversation around things. It's been very specific for five years. 2019 for us is this, mo this idea of churches have got to start seeing the, the deployed part up here is what we're going after. Now, Ralph Moore that I told you about, 2,400 churches, he has spent the past year on our team researching, interviewing people. Um, what we see starting to unfold in a really strong way um, is what I would call the intersection of, um, I'm going to use the word microchurch, but I don't mean house church, um, microchurch with the new bivocational future where we're starting to see unfold, instead of bivocational in a negative way, it's bivocational marketplace pastors, everyday Christians seeing themselves, hey, why can't, if there's chaplains of baseball teams, why can't I be the pastor of my gym? And, and so what we are seeing, in a, I mean, it's actually pretty profound what we're seeing nationally right now, it, and it kind of makes sense. 30 years of a megachurch movement 15 years of a multi-site movement, and now what's happening? You have discontentedness by the people that have led those movements. What's the progression of mega to multi to micro? And what micro becomes is leveraging the best of level three, but with deploying missionaries into the corners of, of, what's, of what's going on. So... If we had time, we would get into the, t I boiled it down to three, but if I were to put up the 10 elements for you, actually, let me just go ahead and say, it, this is all free. Uh, on the Exponential website, the book Multipliers, it's a free download there. Everything we're talking about is in this book. This is the last four years of content at Exponential, all in one book. And so the three-dimensional model, the three circles, it's, 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 uh, it's a free download, so you don't have to pay anything for it. Yeah, I, I, think, I think you've got to be careful. Like, and I'm part of a level four church. I was the executive pastor there. I don't think we want to just throw away the good of what we're... My thing isn't go throw it away. The, the question that we've got to wrestle with is, do we need to see revolutionary change or evolutionary change? And which can you stomach? Because here's the reality. To get where we need to go, we've got to see revolutionary change. 
this operating system is so deeply embedded in, in who we are, it's going to take revolutionary change. But I like the idea of revolutionary change with the next generation, with riding a wave into the future. And I'm not sure it's a good thing. I think the idea of evolutionary change with existing churches, revolutionary change, and then how do we support the, the new into the future? Do you think that leaders of level five churches in the future, will, it'll be a requirement to be an apostle in the fivefold ministry? Or, or a, does a pastor by nature not even think, not in a negative way, but the, the wiring doesn't even think um, in apostolic ways like yeah, the question was on the five-fold gifting from Ephesians 4, is, does the level five, is it going to require an apostolic gifting, and, and how much is it going to be demanded there? Now, uh, it's a topic that's had a lot of conversation in our team for two years. Um, the, here's what's interesting. One of the level five churches that's part, absolutely 100% uses the five-fold gifting. They're firm believers in it. It's how they organize. It's how they mobilize. What's interesting is Ralph Moore had not been officially using it. He's level five in. But the group grilled him and said, okay, if you're not officially using it, tell us about the five or six people that are the key leaders of your church. Tell us about the, you and the other four, five, six people that are actually the heartbeat of the church. And Ralph immediately said, he named, he rattled off names, and they said, okay, well, tell us about John. And it was uncanny to a person, there, Ralph's the apostle, there was a prophet, an evangelist, a shepherd, a teacher. It was like, okay, Ralph, you can say you're not using it, but functionally, you're using it. It's there. So I, what, what I would say is we're being very careful about, it because it's such a, it can be a controversial thing on whether it's mandatory or not mandatory. We're handling it very functionally and saying it certainly looks like the functions are, are there, um, and then it's going to be up to each church to decide how they obviously play it out. We've got to wrap this up. Hey, can you give it up for Todd? Show appreciation for amazing, amazing. Thank you. If you have any more questions, uh, if he's got some time, I'm sure he'd love to be able to answer those. Otherwise, uh, you've got 30 minutes to your next app session, 3 o'clock. Make sure you get there quickly as they are filling up.